0: Thank you so much, William, and the worship ministry. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 17. If you're a guest of ours, we are journeying through the book of Revelation together, and we're just a few weeks away from the conclusion of that. In two weeks, we will study the passage of Scripture from which that song was written when The faithful and true one will mount his white horse and come to make war with justice against all those who are opposed to him and establish his kingdom. While you're turning there, I just want us to take a moment and just spend a minute or so uh, or some time in prayer uh, for Israel to continue to pray for what all is going on there. I did some research this week, brief research, and so if, if you are a, a history buff or knowledgeable in history and I am incorrect in any way, please correct me. Uh, I'd love to just talk with you more about it. So I did a little bit of research just to try to better understand what, what is going on in the nation of Israel today. And I found something very very interesting. The, the term Palestine comes from the Greek word Philistia. So I did, dug a little more re, did a little more research, dug a little bit deeper, and found that those who identify as Palestinians today are descendants of the Philistine people. And as I came to understand that, I got a better realization of this tension, this animosity that exists between the Hebrew people and the Philistine people. And if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament, you know that throughout the Old Testament there was a constant battle, a constant struggle between those two people groups, the Philistines and the Hebrew people groups. And so this animosity, this struggle, this battle has been going on for several years thousand years. Now, what's interesting is that the Philistine people ceased to exist as a unique ethnic identity following the Assyrian invasion of that land and the subsequent establishment of the Assyrian empire. So around 1000 BC and on, the Philistine people no longer existed as a as a separate distinct ethnic identity. And then you go through the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, and then the Ottomans who governed that part of the world through World War I. Uh, They sided with the Axis powers, and when they lost World War I, that land was given to the British under the British mandate. It's a whole big spider web that's convoluted, and it's all connected. But here's what we need to understand. There is a distinction between the Palestinian people and Hamas. Hamas is a brutal, savage, inhumane terrorist organization. Are they made up of Palestinians? Sure, and they're made up of a lot of other Arab peoples. And so you and I need to pray for Israel's victory over Hamas. We need to pray for the Palestinians. There are several thousand Christian Palestinians In Gaza today suffering as a result of this war and so we need to pray for them there there are several thousand Christian Jews suffering and so we need to pray that Israel uh, would defeat Hamas this terrorist organization and we need to pray for the peace in that region amen and so let's just spend a few moments doing that today Lord Jesus your word tells us that you are the prince of peace. And we understand that individually, that, that until we come to know you as Lord and Savior, that there is this constant insecurity, this constant anxiety, this, this constant enmity between us and our creator God. But through faith in you, there, now we know Peace. But Lord God, your word also tells us that until the Prince of Peace comes, that this world will not know geopolitical peace. Nonetheless, Lord, we are praying that you would bring peace to Israel and to the Middle East, Lord, that you would end this war quickly and decisively, and that the savagery and the brutality and the inhumanity of Hamas would be eliminated And you would bring peace to that region and stability. Lord God, we understand that the Hebrew people are your people. And that you still have a a plan for their life as a people group. And so, Lord God, we ask and pray that you would intervene in ways that only you can under your mighty hand. And you would work miraculously in this situation and bring this war to a quick end with as minimal loss of life as possible. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us and redeeming us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Revelation chapter 17. Now, if you're like me, as you read through Revelation, you, you, you probably read it trying to understand, understand the chapters chronologically, that Chapter 1 leads to chapter 2, and chapter 2 leads to chapter 3, and so forth. But it doesn't necessarily work that way, and I've tried my best as we have journeyed through it to to let you know where there's a pause, where this chapter is paralleling this chapter, and it's not. I've tried my best to do that. For example, in chapter 1, verse 19, John was told to write what was, what is, and what will be. Chapter 1 was what was, and that, that was historical at the time of the writing. Chapters 2 and 3 were current events at the time of the writing, the seven churches that literally, uh, that, that existed that were literal, real churches. And then beginning in chapter 4 through chapter 22, the, it's what will be, it's things coming. And even within that, though, there are interludes, if you'll remember, I've used that term, where there's a pause where we stop the action, and John gives us more detail of what we just read, of what's been happening. Well, chapters 17, 18, and 19, well, particularly chapters 17 and 18, are again an, an interlude there. The chronological order of Revelation is suspended, and what we find in these two chapters is more detail from what we read in chapter 16 in the seven bold judgments. And so, Chapters 17 and 18 are happening as chapter 16 is unfolding, okay? And for these two chapters, the scene shifts from God's judgments, which we looked at in chapters 6 through 9 and then chapter 16, to the target of those judgments, the kingdom of Antichrist and all those who are a part of it, Particularly, verse 8 says, all those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Chapter 17 will describe Christ's judgment of Antichrist's religious system. Chapter 18 will describe Christ's judgment of Antichrist's political and economic system, okay? And, and kind of the, 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 the subject of these two chapters is this idea of Babylon. Now, let me give you a little bit of history of Babylon. Throughout world history, the city of Babylon had been a center of false religion. The city was abandoned in about 1000 AD, okay? But prior to that, it had been the center of false religion. And in the end, here's what we understand. False false religion will find its way back to its roots, okay? The devil who deceived the world at Babel, launching false religion all over the earth, will deceive the world again. And he will do so with this final one-world false religion. And it's depicted as a prostitute in this chapter. And that's the subject of chapters 17 and 18. Now, every era of human history has featured a quote-unquote Babylon, a a religious, a political, and an economic system or ideology that has sought to win the approval of the world, that has sought to control the people of the world. And in this morning's text, chapter 17, we're going to get a better understanding of of Babylon, of, of who this is, this notorious prostitute, of false religion and we're going to get a better understanding of the role that this pagan ideology plays uh, in the end time so uh, there's two main points you'll see those in your notes there so let's dive in here to the first one and we, we see this in verses 1 through 6 and here it is uh, the unveiling of the false religion of Babylon the unveiling of the false religion Of Babylon. So let's read these verses together and then we'll kind of take a look at it. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And so, verse 1 tells us John was invited to see what God will do with, with Antichrist worldwide, false, pagan, idolatrous religious system. Now, interestingly, in this chapter, in all of chapter 17, four times this woman is called a prostitute. And her sin is called sexual immorality. Now, the, the term prostitute or harlot, depending on your English translation, does not reference a, a literal prostitute, and nor does the term sexual immorality reference literal the literal act of sexual immorality. The, the term prostitute is a metaphor. John uses it here as a metaphor for false religion, idolatry, idolatry and religious apostasy. And the term sexual immorality is also used as a metaphor, and it's used as a metaphor for the world's acceptance and intimate involvement with the pagan ideology of this world system that we live in. Now, we see evidence of this. We see evidence of this this intimate involvement, this acceptance of this this pagan ideology in Romans chapter 1, in verse thirty-two, Paul in chapter one, Paul, Paul chapter one of Romans, Paul describes this journey from sin to idolatry to depravity, and in verse thirty-two he says this. Listen carefully. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them. Listen, listen carefully, but even applaud others. Who practice them. And that is the language that John is describing for us. He's describing for us a scene in which you and I celebrate sin, in, in which you and I are enamored with sin, where we condone sin, where we are no longer ashamed of sin. That's the idea of being drunk with the, on the wine of her sexual immorality. And then John describes for us this woman, th- th- this prostitute, this ideology that is leading the world into this gross spiritual immorality. And, and look closely at what he says to us. In verse 4, he says, She is dressed in expensive clothing, she's also wearing gold and other jewels and pearls. In verse 4 and verse 6, she's holding a golden cup in her hand, and she's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. This is an attractive ideology. It's an attractive system. It, it garners our attention. It, it, it makes us take a double take when we see it. You and I also need to be reminded that this world system, this world that we live in, that where we're foreigners, we're outsiders, we're pilgrims, has never been and will never side with the people of God. No matter how much effort we put into it, this world will never side with the people of God. This world system will continue to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. In verses 1, we see that she is seated on in verse 1, we see that she is seated on many waters. And then verse 15 explains to us that this phrase, many waters, references peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. In other words, the entire world will fall in line with the ideology of quote-unquote Babylon. The entire world will be enamored with the pagan ideas and the pagan philosophies of Babylon. The entire world will celebrate sin and depravity. The entire world, we're told here, will become drunk with her spiritual immorality. Verse 3 tells us that she's seated on a scarlet beast covered with blasphemous names and with seven heads and and ten horns. Now, you and I know and understand the beast is Antichrist. And Antichrist supports and undergirds this false religious system of the world. Now, why why the color scarlet? Why did John even include scarlet? Why not just say sitting on the beast? Well, In Scripture, the color scarlet is associated first with luxury, splendor, and royalty. But secondly, it's also closely associated with sin. And you and I can understand this from that word association. Here's what we understand and know about Antichrist. He will be a majestic, royal, sinful, bloody beast full of blasphemy. He will be attractive and charismatic and seductive and the world will literally fall in line with what he is espousing. He's not one that would scare us and make us turn and run. He's one that is attractive and appealing. So, here are the key, here are the key takeaways in verses 1 through 6. Look with me there in your notes. Here's, here's what I want you just to, to kind of take away here. From verse 2, here's what we understand. The unredeemed of the world will be intoxicated with Antichrist's false world religion. The unredeemed of the world will be intoxicated with Antichrist's false world religion. And here's the second thing from verse 6. False religion has been and will continue to be an enemy and a murderer of God's people has been and will continue to be an enemy and murderer of God's people. That's verses 1 through 6. Now, look with me beginning in verse 7. Let's read through verse 18, and then we'll kind of dive into that uh, as we finish our time up together. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for only a little while. The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords. And King of Kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He also said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The ten horns you saw in the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with, her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled verse 18 and the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth and so in these verses the angel takes a few takes some time to explain to to John in further detail what he saw in verses 1 through 6 now look with me at verse 18 first it is generally agreed that a, that a rebuilt city of Babylon will be closely identified with Antichrist's world empire. Now, historic Babylon is located in a, in a very strategic place. It is at the crossroads of Asia, Europe, and Africa. Its location is near the world's richest oil fields and has virtually unlimited water supply. It's situated right between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's in the middle of modern-day Iraq. Here's what we understand about the history of Babylon. It was founded by a man named Nimrod. Remember Nimrod from Genesis chapter 10? The name Babel, by which it is historically known, means the gate of little g, God, the gate of God. And it was in Babel, or at Babel, where that famous tower was built, remember? It was an idolatrous attempt by man to defy God, to, to, to outdo God, to one-up God, to work our way into the heavenly places. You see, from the very beginning of Nimrod's City, this, this anti-God, uh, quote-unquote, Babylonian influence has corrupted every generation of humanity. Babylon is is the great prostitute. But notice what else we read there. She's also the mother of prostitutes. In other words, the influence of the Babylonian system has in one way or another given birth to every false religion in the world. Let, Let me explain. In Genesis chapter 11... As man had come together to build this tower of Babel and to to, to defy God, to try to one-up God, what what did God do? God confused their language so that they could no longer build this tower, and he sent them away to every corner of the earth. And as a result, this anti-God influence of Babylon spread through the entire world. Today, Listen to this. This, this, I found this fascinating. Today, it's estimated that there are a little over 4,000, 4,000 religions in the world, 4,000 faith systems in the world. Now, most of those are a variant of of one kind or another of the 12 major religions. Let me just remind you of what those are. Baha'i. Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, Jainism, Judaism, Shinto, Sikhism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, and finally, Christianity. It's not an exaggeration to say that every single false religion the world has finds its roots in Babylon. That's why this language is so prominent in the book of Revelation. In verses 9 through 10, we're told that these seven kings represent seven world empires. We've talked about this previously. We're told there that five have fallen. That is in reference to the Egyptian, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, and the Greek empire. We're told that one is. At the time of the writing, the Roman Empire was still in existence. And then the other is not yet come. That is a reference to Antichrist's final world empire. And that is the direction this world is headed today. Verse 12 tells us that the ten horns represent ten kings. These ten kings ally together. And they relinquish their authority to Antichrist. And as a result, that allows him to rise to power and establish his kingdom. Now, we're told in verse 10 that his kingdom will only last a little while. It's a short-lived kingdom, but it's a mighty kingdom. You see, Antichrist will unite, and he will unify the world around a a one-world government. And it'll, it'll, it'll usher in a time of world peace. Listen, Antichrist is the individual the world. He's the leader of the world. This troubled world has been seeking for thousands of years. Somebody who's going to come to power and bring us all together, and together we'll just sit around and sing kumbaya. It's what the world's looking for. The problem is world peace won't last. We, We looked at that with the first seal. After three and a half years, the Antichrist will begin to persecute the church of Christ as well as the nation of Israel in ways never experienced before. The fifth seal teaches us that the martyrdom of those Christians during the time of the tribulation will be unlike anything the church has ever experienced. You see, the Antichrist will become the world's dictator. He will also be the world's object of worship and adoration. We see here that the agenda of Antichrist and these ten ten kings who serve him, what does that say here? Will be to wage war against the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who follow him. Now, notice carefully what we read in verse 14. John tells us and reminds us that the Lamb of God will overcome him. That the Lamb of God wins, amen? Amen. We'll study in just a few weeks in chapter 19. We're going to see it in a minute, but we're going to study it in greater detail. This battle will be a slaughter. Christ will destroy the opposing forces of Satan that gather against him when he comes on that white horse. He will easily defeat the greatest armed force ever assembled when he returns with his followers and his holy angels. Listen carefully first from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Listen to the language that Paul uses to describe that moment. He says, This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Listen to this. On that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. And then in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 17, let me me just introduce this to you this morning. Here's what we read. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, "'Come, gather together for the great supper of God, "'so that you may eat the flesh of kings, "'the flesh of military commanders, "'the flesh of the mighty, "'the flesh of horses and of their riders, "'and the flesh of everyone, "'both free and slaves, small and great. "'Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth "'and their armies gathered to wage war "'against the rider on the horse and against his army.' But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, listen to verse 21. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate the fill of their flesh. The armies of the earth are gathering, even today, in mind and in spirit and in philosophy and ideology, they're gathering to wage war against Christ when he comes, but it'll ultimately be a slaughter of which Christ easily wins. Listen, what do we read here? The reasons all the forces of hell and earth cannot defeat the Lamb of God. Notice what we read there is because he is what? He is Lord of lords. And he is king of kings. Church, he he is the great I am. He is the almighty one. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one true God. And hallelujah, praise to him. He is victorious. You and I know the end of the story. We know where all of this craziness and chaos is headed. It is headed to a great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John does something very interesting, obviously under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look what we read here in verse 14. that this verse should bring you great comfort this morning. Those who come with Christ are identified look what we read here, as called, chosen and faithful." Now this language involves some incredibly deep waters of great doctrine of which we're not going to swim in this morning. But I want to just leave it with you, leave this with you this morning, all right? Be encouraged with this, all right? Number one, believers are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, li- listen to what we read. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world... To be holy and blameless in love before him. Now, let's restate it in these, this language so we make sure we get a good understanding of it. For God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the Lord. I, this, this I, I can't wrap my mind around this great truth. Are you ready for this? God chose to save you in Christ from before the beginning of the heavens and the earth. Try to wrap your mind around that great truth. Before there was one speck of creation, God Almighty chose to save you in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Before we were conceived in our mother's womb, before we rebelled against him in any way, he chose to redeem us. Number two, believers are called by God to repentance and faith. In John 6 and verse 44, Jesus made this statement. Are you ready? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There there are several things that are true of every single testimony of those who are in Christ. Several things, but here's one in particular. Are you ready? At some moment in your life, at a vacation Bible school at a student camp in your bedroom with your mom and dad in your apartment with your college friend whatever it may be at some point in your life the Holy Spirit of God jumped all over you showed you your sin and showed you your need of a savior And in this mysterious way that you and I can't explain to anyone who's never experienced God drew us to himself And brought us to a place where we surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ. It's true of anyone who's in Christ. And it's mysterious. It's hard to explain to someone who's never been there. But that's exactly what God does. In this wonderful, mysterious, and awesome way, he draws us to himself. He shows us our sin. And he convinces us of our need of a Savior. And our eyes are opened. And we say yes to Jesus. We are called by God to repentance and faith. And then finally, notice what we read here. Believers are faithful to follow Christ. Are faithful to follow Christ. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of, of heaven. You see, it, it's, it's not a, a verbal profession of faith. It is a faith that follows Christ. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, listen to what we read here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said this. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. In other words, those who have made an authentic profession of faith in Christ will be faithful to follow him. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. In First John chapter 2 and verse 19, the apostle John wrote that they, they went out at, um, among us because they were never one of us. You see, folks, it's impossible for someone who's made an authentic decision for Christ to ever find themselves separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are faithful to follow Christ. So, what do we take away from verses 7 through 18? Look with me there in your notes. Number one, the agenda of Antichrist... And the ten kings who serve him will be to wage war against the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who follow him. That's the agenda of Antichrist and those who follow him. Number two, Christ will effortlessly crush the greatest armed force ever assembled when he returns with his followers and the holy angels. And then number three, be encouraged. Believers are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, called by God to repentance and faith, and faithfully follow Christ. So be encouraged. This, this anti-God ideology and philosophy and system that you and I live in is coming to an end. And it's coming to an end shortly. And soon, let's pray, Father God. Thank you for the opportunity again to sing your praises today, to gather as the body of Christ, to, to 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 celebrate you together today. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to study your Word together. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you continue to teach us truth, Lord. That you continue to just mold and shape us into the men and women you've called us, created us, and redeemed us to be. Father God, would you have your way in these moments? Would you move and work in a way that only you can for your glory and for your honor? With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you were here this morning and you've never surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ, you've never made a personal decision to say yes to Jesus, why not today? Why not say yes to Jesus today? Why not experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God today? Why not die to self and die to this world system and take up your cross and follow Christ? The one who loves you and the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, the one who rose from the dead to guarantee your eternal life. Why not today say yes to Jesus? In Romans chapter 10, it says that if you believe in your heart that Christ rose from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. So will you today believe and confess and follow Christ? Father God, move and work, and move and work, Lord God, in ways that only you can for your glory and for your honor. And so in the name of Jesus we pray, amen and amen. I want to invite you to stand as the team leads us in just a hymn of celebration and praise. If you, if you would like to just talk with me a little further about what it means to know Christ as Savior, what does it mean uh, to just surrender your life to him, I'm going to be available here for just a few moments. I'd love to just talk with you and pray with you and help you as much as I can in this brief time. If not, let's just sing the praises of the Lord. Let's celebrate uh, the glory of God and the redemption we have in Christ together this morning.